Well, hello there, friends, and welcome into this bonus recording of the Winsome Creationist podcast. On this one, we're going to do something quite a bit different from what we normally do, okay? This is going to be a response video to a video that was just put out by a fantastic brother in Christ, Gavin Ortland, okay? Gavin has been a, um, you know, somebody that I've really admired and looked up to in terms of a YouTuber and a brother in Christ and somebody who I think is doing fantastic work for the church. Um, he's taken the issue of creationism to task. This will be his second time now on his YouTube channel. And the way he's talking, it kind of sounds like he's going to be engaging with it more, um, which is good for us. Why? Because because Gavin is a very kind person. He truly embodies and exemplifies a Christian heart and Christian values. And though I think he is wrong in uh, his presentation that he's going to share here in terms of this movie is Genesis history that he's critiquing. I commend him for his attitude and for his spirit. And I hope that if he sees this, and even if he doesn't see this, I hope that everyone watching will interpret my thoughts, my actions, my words, the you know, responses that I give here in very much the same way. A couple items of housekeeping before we dive in. Okay, number one, we're going to play his whole video. We're going to play it at one and a half times speed. In fact, everything I show is going to be shown at one and a half times speed. That way we can go through it a little bit quicker and it, it's not quite so drug out. Hopefully that won't bother you too much. Okay. We're going to show his video and then at least one clip uh, to sort of expand upon something that he raised an issue with. And also I'm going to flip to an article that I wrote back in 2019. So in 2019, I wrote a response article to a gentleman named Luke Nix. And this article was published on the Cross-Examined blog. And I wrote, I think it's about a 6,000-word uh, response to some challenges that were raised. Now, Gavin's video is about 20 minutes long. And Luke's article was very long and, and delves into a lot more issues than even Gavin goes into here. So if you want to see sort of like a, a steel man and even expanded critique of the Is Genesis History movie from, again, a very smart and gracious individual, Luke Nix, then uh, feel free to go check out my blog post, which I'll put on the screen. Let me actually just go ahead and do that so that it's up there. And I apologize for some of these little uh, quirks and uh, delays and such because I, I am new to this. I don't really do response uh, formats very often. So here is this article on screen, and you can go to steveshram.com uh, and just type in Genesis history in the search bar, and you should be able to find this. Uh, but the article is called Coming to Grips with History, a response to Luke Nix and Cross-Examined. So make no mistake, we're going to be uh, referencing that article at least a little bit as we go throughout. And of course, I point you within here to Luke's uh, original article so that you can go read that in its fullness as well. I believe I represented it fairly and just wanted to mention that because I think it's a, an even more important, uh, in a sense, critique than Gavin's because it expands further. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out and mention it goes into a lot of the same issues that Gavin raised. And I sort of uh, uh, come to the defense of the IGH film uh, on that blog as well, just like I'm going to do in this video. So I would encourage you to check that out. OK, uh, I think that's the only uh, immediate housekeeping that I have. I, I will put uh, the links in the show notes, of course, and in the bottom uh, in the YouTube description if you're watching on YouTube. So I hope you find this uh, critique overall to be gracious and i hope you find it to be helpful and without further ado let's pull up his video and we will start watching
this video, I want to offer a review of the movie Is Genesis History. It's been out for several years now, but the sequel was just released called Is Genesis History, Mountains After the Flood. I hope to review that as well, but I thought I'd start with this first movie. Uh, this had a huge impact. Uh, especially within Christian circles. I'm sure the sequel will bring fresh attention to it. If you haven't seen it, basically it's a case for young earth creationism. This is the view that the days of Genesis 1 are 24 hour periods of time. The universe and earth are relatively young, maybe six to 10,000 years old. And so it's just working through these interviews with 13 different young earth creationist scientists. Now I appreciate the intention of the film to uphold a biblical doctrine of creation. The people involved are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm sure they're sincere in their views and in their efforts. And I'm aware of the fact that lots of people who watch this video, uh, a lot of my viewers probably love the film and so forth, but I need to share my concerns about the film and why I think it ultimately harms our witness as the church and puts a lot of stumbling blocks in people's pathway. Let me explain why I say that. It's not. Okay. So I'll just stop there and say again. Yeah. I mean, Gavin has a heart of gold and I certainly appreciate him taking this path. And I think that as an interlocutor, he's going to be somebody to engage with on these issues who will be a gracious sparring partner on these ideas and will be somebody who brings lots of clarity and lots of grace to it. So you know, A plus, I commend that about Gavin, and I only hope that I, uh, that my responses and my thoughts, again, will, will be seen in the same light. Not just because I hold a different view than young earth creationism, though that's true. But even if I was a young earth creationist, I think I would still have these concerns. Because the way is Genesis history makes its case has three fundamental problems. First, it acts like young earth creationism and naturalism are the only two options to choose from. Second, it equates a historical reading of Genesis 1 with a literal reading of Genesis 1. And third, it gives what is occasionally a very misleading account of what the scientific evidence indicates. Let me run through. I actually appreciate him saying occasionally a very misleading account. Okay. Um, again, I'm going to actually take issue with that, but um, I appreciate him not pretending like the movie is just a complete misrepresentation of the science because it's really not. And let me just clarify too. And, and like a lot of these people I have, spent many, 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 many hours with a lot of the people who are in the video. Literally, one of the people in the video is my client, uh, the producer of the video, and um, a uh, uh, one of the scientists in the video. I spent four hours at the last uh, International Conference on Creationism just hearing their passion for God's Word and God's world. Nobody in this movie is intentionally aiming to mislead or deceive, and I think that's very important to just reiterate. He makes the point, but I, again, I just want to underscore it. Like, yes, People are dastardly sometimes, but these are really, really good people that I know personally, and I would vouch for them. And um, I really think that, uh, that that some of these issues are not quite as blatant or as problematic as, as Gavin seems to think they are. Run through these real quickly. You can also see in the video description my written review. First, the film acts like there's two options, young earth creationism or naturalism. Take your pick. So at the climax of the, of the introduction, there's a series of contrasts. Was the world made in a few days or over billions of years? Are we descended from apes or created instantly in God's image? Was there a global flood or is the flood story a myth? In other words, is Genesis history? Did God create the world in a few days or billions of years? Is mankind descended from apes or did God create us instantly in his image? Was there a global flood that destroyed the earth or is that a myth? In other words, is Genesis history? already, you, if you're listening carefully, you, you might be having a worry about a false dichotomy, having to choose between two options when those aren't the only two options. But ultimately, what comes into view in the second interview of the movie is these two options, what are called the conventional paradigm, which involves strictly physical processes. So this is full-blown naturalistic evolution. So God is out of the picture. Naturalism means there's nothing beyond nature. Versus the, the second option is the historical genesis paradigm. And this is young earth creationism. Everything is very recent. And those are the two options that are put forward. On the one hand, we have the conventional paradigm. In the conventional paradigm, you've got deep time. 13.7 billion years, along which this gradual process, beginning with primal simplicity, ending in what we see today, 
all the complexity in life has to be built bottom up by strictly physical processes where no mind, no creator, no design is present. The second view we can call, let's say, the historical genesis paradigm. Everything starts with a divine mind, a creator, an intelligence that plans and superintends and brings into existence reality. Events are happening on a much more recent timescale. The universe, the solar system, our planet, life itself, all of that begins fully formed as a functioning system. It's not hard to see there's a radical difference between those two in terms of time. And my concern is that is a false dichotomy. That's what we call the law of the excluded middle, where you're basically just making people choose between two extreme options. It'd be like somebody who says, well, I can't be a theist anymore because I'm not a fundamentalist. And you just think for one second, you realize, wait a second, those aren't the only two options. You could just remain a theist and, and not be a fundamentalist. There's all kinds of options in the middle between those two. Similarly with creation, the film, you know, someone watching this film is just not going to be aware of how many conservative and even fundamentalist Christians have accepted some form of old earth creationism, where they believe God is creating, even doing supernatural creation processes, but they don't think the universe is a few thousand years old. That, that whole slew of different positions is just completely excluded from visibility for viewers of this film. In my response. Okay. Now, um, Let's stop here for a minute. So so one of the things that is not being made clear here is that this is a film that takes a stand on a particular point, okay? This film is not intended to be a fully unbiased examination of different ways that Christians view the Bible. Full stop. Okay? It's not a documentary about that okay it's asking the question did the events as recorded in scripture happen the way that the bible says that they did and while yes there are many christians who take different views on this at the end of the day at the end of the day where this film draws its line and this is mentioned all throughout it's impossible to miss is time Okay, time. Now, Paul Nelson, the uh, bald fellow that you saw in the clip um, prior to him coming back on screen here, is a young earth creationist who is actually affiliated with the Discovery Institute out in the Western United States. And he very popularly, which uh, Gavin is going to mention here in a moment, he very popularly dissented from his role in the movie because of this false dichotomy issue. Okay, so it was a big deal. He wrote a blog post about this dissenting from the role. And, and what I'd like to do, if you'll sort of just allow me the grace to do this, is actually to uh, to share with you and, and read to you the article, uh, at least an excerpt from the article that I wrote, um, detailing this piece of things. Okay, so again, this is on the article Coming to Grips with History on my website, stevesram.com. And I want to start reading uh, right here on this issue of philosophical issues. Okay, I'm going to start quoting. Nix begins his critique with a familiar opening argument raised against the film, namely that its entire premise rests upon a false dichotomy. This particular charge spread like wildfire subsequent to some of the or to one of the film's experts, Paul Nelson, writing a popular blog post in which he descends from his role. Something to point out is that a well-educated philosopher of science and young age creationist, Nelson does not seem to be arguing that the false dichotomy is whether one paradigm or the other is true. Rather, he offers that the dichotomy ensues because IGH's definition of the conventional paradigm brings together acceptance of a long time scale with an assertion of no design. 
In other words, Nelson is pointing out the seemingly obvious fact that there are legitimate Bible-believing Christians who would, in fact, not include themselves in either of the paradigms presented in the film. For Nelson, the line is drawn between design and no design. I'll circle back to this after hearing from Nix again. Nix writes, quote, At the very beginning of the documentary, it is proposed that only two options exist regarding origins, either naturalism or a young earth creationist view. Because of the fact that they intend to investigate an important historical event, it is important that they do not preclude any options before their investigation even begins. If an investigation reveals that neither option is viable, then what is the Christian to do? Because of this drastic philosophical mistake from the beginning of the film, if a Christian is ever convinced that the universe is ancient, then it is implied, if not explicit, that the creators of the film believe that the logically consistent person must reject Christ as well. However, other views do exist. So, when a Christian sees the compelling evidence from God's creation that it testifies to an ancient universe, there is no need to jettison Christ or even the historicity of the early chapters of Genesis, end quote from Nix. Continuing on, prima facie, it's easy to see Nix's concern. He, as do all progressive creationists, want to have a seat at the table and believe others should as well. But this wasn't their movie. Here's what I mean. Had this been the Discovery Institute's movie, where Nelson is affiliated, they would have likely drawn a line between themselves and theistic evolutionists. Indeed, they draw this line almost daily throughout their publications and held nothing back in their 2018 release of the ironically titled tome, Theistic Evolution. By drawing this line, progressive creationists and age-agnostic intelligent design proponents are not claiming theistic evolutionists are not Christians. Rather, they are deciding to place their theological stake in the ground on a particular issue and creating materials which advance views on their side of the stake and critically evaluate views on the other side. Let's be clear that this is exactly what the Is Genesis History movie is attempting to do. The Discovery Institute draws the line at design versus no design, and any movie that they made would surely reflect that. IGH, or Is Genesis History, draws the line at a particular understanding of history, and thus they created a movie which reflects that. Now, could the IGH movie have better presented this? Perhaps so, which is, I think, all that Nelson was actually pining for. However, surely one could not fault Is Genesis History for publicly opposing views, which they believe have implications for the gospel, and critiquing them as such just because someone with the opposing view does not believe so. Progressive creationists and ID proponents most often join the young age creationists in harsh criticism of theistic evolution, including its implications for the gospel, lest we think the robust theological section of theistic evolution was written merely because the Discovery Institute prefers their understanding of the gospel over the theistic evolutionists. Therefore, I argue that the IGH dichotomy exists, but not fallaciously. It is drawn precisely where Excuse me, it is drawn precisely because young age creationists like myself hold the strong conviction that accurate history, where we draw the line, also has implications for the gospel, not merely God's chosen method of bringing about the natural order. Dr. Todd Wood, a participant in the film and notoriously fair-minded young age creationist, has written a helpful article in response to this charge as well, which I linked up here, and I will share that link with you as well. Okay, so what 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 to make of all this? So... It's important to realize that a young age creationist, okay, number one, number one, is is on 
the historical side of the interpretation, okay? Young age creationism is unquestionably, and I know Gavin might have actually some some qualms with what I'm about to say here, but I'm not the only one who believes this. In fact, Dr. William Lane Craig literally wrote a paragraph that says almost exactly what I'm getting ready to say um, in uh, his latest book, okay, uh, on the historical Adam. The fact of the matter is, is that the young earth creationist hermeneutic is the church's historical view on origins, okay? It's not a recent invention like a lot of people seem to think it is, okay? And so, number one, if you're going to take – and the, the very fact that everybody in the comments of Gavin's video says, yeah, I grew up YEC, it's not just some American cultural thing, okay? This has literally been the, his, the church's historical view of origins since its inception and in the Jewish calendar and, and everything else, okay? And so it's important to realize that, number one. Number two, for a young age creationist, the line is being drawn at the age of things being the primary concern because we believe it affects the gospel, okay? We actually do believe, okay? Even though there are people like Gavin who aren't young earth creationists and accept Christ, that doesn't mean that their view could imply something about the nature of the gospel, okay? So we can still argue, as the IGH film does, even though they don't state it in such explicit terms, one could still argue that it's logically inconsistent to be a Christ follower and an old earth creationist, even if someone is a Christ follower and a young age creationist, okay? So again, I want to be charitable, but this this feels like, in this case, since it's Gavin we're responding to, I'll just call Gavin out. It feels like Gavin wants to be like, hey, but I believe Christ, and I'm an old earth creationist. So where's my seat at the table? And to that, I say, great, glad to have you. Let's talk and discuss. But that doesn't mean that I have to take your view in my film about the historical creationist understanding of the Bible, it doesn't mean that I need to include your view in the film. Now, again, I admit they probably could have gave it at least a nod here and and at least said something about the fact that, well, what about the Christians who accept a old earth creationist paradigm? How do they fit in here? I totally admit that was probably worth a three to five minute inclusion in this movie. But I'm also not totally upset that it's not there because I think that they are creating the dichotomy at the right place. That's my view. It's my view that the age of things really does matter and that ultimately, whether you're a Christian or not, looking at the acceptance of millions and billions of years of time is going to be a very big problem for taking the Bible seriously. It doesn't matter that throughout Christianity's history and Jewish history, even that there have been scholars who have uh, not believed in the young age creationist view. There's all kinds of people who believe things that you don't believe. It doesn't mean that you have to believe that they're biblically consistent when they do. Again, many ID proponents don't believe that theistic evolutionists are be, are able to square with the Bible. Okay, And so they draw their line there at design in the process versus no design in the process. Again, we're just drawing the line at a different place. And so I, I don't really think that this is a, a fault or a problem um, with the IGH view. I don't think that every, every – um, view has to be included um, just because 
one sees themselves to be consistent, um, you know, with, with, with being a Christ follower and also being an old earth creationist. Okay. It, it's not their prerogative to, to show that in their movie. Okay. So let us go back to the video and continue. The response to Ken Ham, another video I made recently, I pointed out some examples of this, you know, I, I think we just don't realize today. A lot of people, that's why I'm making this video. I've learned about this. A lot of people don't realize that it's only in the second half of the 20th century up to the present day that younger creationism has taken on the particular kind of role that it has right now where it's so prominent. Um, but okay. Um, this is a half truth. It's, it's a half truth. The reason for it is yes, for sure. In the, let me, let me actually just back up. Okay. I have a lot in my mind right now because I'm actually writing a book on this subject. So bear with me a little bit. Okay. Um, this was the church's historic view of origins, young age creationism. Okay. Um, Scientific knowledge has advanced rapidly, very rapidly. And discussions about these things really kicked up in the first half of the 20th century following the late half of the uh, 20th century, or excuse me, the, the 20th century, and then following the late half of the 19th century's, um, you know, introduction of, of Darwin's uh, origin of species, okay? Um, if you look back th through time, there have always been people talking about the issues of creation and science in the Bible. These things have come up quite a bit, okay? But the science specifically of age really started to take effect. The age discussions, going back to the scriptural geologists and, and, and such, and, and the Seventh-day Adventist uh, people like, you know, George McCready Price and others, um, there, these discussions around age and time have begun to take more shape because it's only in the last few centuries that we've began to have these discussions about deep geological time. And then when evolution got entered into the mix, it was even more so. So um, I just want to be careful that just because this is, has just become a really big deal in the second half of the 20th century, um, it's not as though that, that it was invented during the second half of the 20th century or like only only mattered in the second half of the 20th century. These conversations have been going on for millennia now, okay? Hundreds of years and even into the millennia. So it's not it, it's not a recent invention, as many claim that it is. And I don't necessarily think that Gavin here is saying that it's a recent invention, but I've heard a lot of people make that claim, and it's just not. But like, if you go back further, the Schofield Reference Bible advocated for the gap theory. That's a species of older creationism. William Jennings Bryan, who represented the prosecution at the Scopes trial, held to a day-age view. That's older creationism. In that video, I went through so many examples like this. J. Gresham Machen, who stood against theological liberalism, older creationist. B.B. Warfield, who upheld the authority of scripture against higher biblical criticism, older creationist. We talked about Charles Spurgeon and so many other examples. You just Once again, once again, just because these people were allegedly not... And I know some of them for sure. Some of them I'm not sure. That's why I'm saying allegedly. Just because they were not young earth creationists or young age creationists, strictly speaking, does not mean that that's not still an issue. Okay? There are a lot of people who are open theists and claim to follow Christianity and claim to be a Christ follower. Okay? But if you were adamant that open theism was a heresy or was a huge problem and you were making your documentary, I could see somebody making a documentary that just sets up the dichotomy between the open view of time, uh, uh, the open view of God versus a view of God where God knows the future, okay? So I, I can see that being the case, and maybe that example is not the best, but I'm just kind of throwing it out there that just because there are people who take your view and believe in your view who are also Christians does not mean that their view is logically consistent or biblically accurate. Okay, that's important to, to point out. 
You just think of like faithful Christians throughout the 20th century who advanced the gospel, whether it's Billy Graham or C.S. Lewis or John Stott. So many people are excluded from visibility if you just have these two options, the historical Genesis paradigm and the conventional paradigm. Right. But again, on the historical Genesis paradigm that this movie advances, those people are just as in the wrong. Okay. On this point, because what we're talking about is the logical foundation of the gospel. We're not talking about whether or not you can be a Christian. That's a different discussion. So this is a real problem because it's it's forcing people to choose between these two options when they're not the only options that exist. It'd be one thing if the film referenced other perspectives on creation and then worked through them and argued that they were wrong. But unfortunately, they're hardly discussed. So people watching this film won't even be aware of how widely represented, or even, they may not even know that those options exist. I actually meet a lot of people like that. Okay, so let me say two things um, about this, okay? Number one, again, this is a film. It's a documentary. It was in a theater run. And there is limited time to include things in a film. And so, again, this was not a film exploration about the various views of creationism within the church. Okay, now I, I, I agree. I've already granted three to five minutes of, of some kind of mention it might have been warranted. But again, I don't think it was necessary. So what's the point in the time period that you have that you want to make? If the point is you want to make that there is a, a, a problem where one side of the aisle believes in old ages, long time scales, and the other side of the aisle believes in a short time scale in terms of the logical foundation of the gospel and, and taking the biblical text at face value and understanding what it says, then the film sets up the correct dichotomy. For, for all intents and purposes, the old age creationist is in the same camp as the naturalist for the purposes of this film, okay? Now, the other thing I wanted to say is that the irony of what Gavin is suggesting here, and this might be another thing, again, that might not be apparent to, to first-time watchers of the film, just, you know, lay Christians, but um, I feel like I should say it for the benefit of Gavin, for his followers, and everything else to, to understand. Ironically, the very thing that he's asking for, okay, to for these other views of creation to be worked through, this is exactly what the... Um, <laughs> creationists for the last 50 years have done. In fact, this is all they've done is picked on evolutionists. I call it evolution bashing. And they have written books and, and articles and produced films and documentaries and, and all kinds of things against other Christians who hold different views. It's, it's very specific and intentional, but this film is not doing that. The point of this film isn't to pick on other Christians who hold different views. The point of this film is not to pick on naturalists. The point of this film is not to pick on evolutionists or to pick on people who believe in design versus no design. The point of this film is to understand that if you believe in long ages, you've got a problem squaring with the biblical text and biblical theology. Okay, That's the point this film is making. And then it's to show that scientifically we have reasons that we can trust what the Bible says on this matter. And again, the, the, the movie takes what many have admitted to be the historical Christian view of the church that admittedly most of the people watching Gavin's video have grown up with. Okay. So again, the fact that there are these other views out there is immaterial to what this video was ultimately trying to do. And I just really think it's important that we understand this point. This video is not about bashing other views or even about working through other views. That's not what the documentary was about. And so that's why they didn't go this route.
people like this. They've never heard of anything other than these two extreme options. Interestingly, the philosopher of science who introduced those labels in the second interview, Paul Nelson, subsequently dissented from his role in the film. And I really appreciated him speaking out. I appreciated the integrity that that took and his honesty. Uh, what he basically said is we should organize the range of current opinion about origins around the deepest or most significant differences that separate positions. And that isn't the timescale involved. That is exactly. Okay, now that's Paul Nelson's opinion. And apparently, I'm not sure exactly what Gavin's going to say here, but apparently it's his opinion too. It's not the opinion of most young age creationists. Most young age creationists believe the time scale is arguably the biggest and most significant difference because of what it implies about potentially even the character and goodness of God and all kinds of things. Again, it's just it's just important to understand where the creationist is coming from. And I disagree with Paul Nelson's statement there. Exactly right. We don't want people to think that I have two options. Either uh, the universe is extremely young and I have to find some way to deal with starlight and all these things, or God wasn't involved. That's not helpful. And presenting those two options is a, is a false dichotomy. This, this is how the Bible presents the issue. I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to say. I mean, this is why the church has held this view historically for thousands of years. And this is why the um, um, geologists in the 1700s were literally making statements like, we're going to free the science from Moses. When they invented the biblical, or, or excuse me, the the um, when they invented the view of uniformitarianism, okay, or they posited the view of uniformitarianism, the present is the key to the past, which this movie goes in depth on on, on dealing with, okay. So that is the issue. Second concern is the film equates a historical reading of Genesis with a literal reading of Genesis. Now the word literal is a complicated word. Uh, I've talked about that elsewhere. I'm just using it for convenience here. In a... Now I agree there uh, with uh, Gavin for sure. Uh, the word literal is a complicated word i tend to use the word natural reading of the text instead of literal um yeah it's it, i agree with him it's very it's a very difficult and dicey word to get into because you know, people assign different ranges of meanings to it in a simple sense to refer to the 24-hour day interpretation now basically what i want to say about this like the creators of this film i believe the genesis account is historical that simply means it describes what happens in real history it's telling us about events that happened in the space-time history of our universe um, I also believe it's true. It's completely trustworthy. I believe in biblical inerrancy, basically. Um, but right, and, and so, again, I would just be interested to know. I don't know his personal but views, is, but, but I would be sort of interested to know if he accepts theistic evolution. And if he doesn't accept theistic evolution, I would be interested to know where he draw the line, draws the line at what is the problem with that. And I would subsequently be interested to know what his interpretation of Genesis and its historicity has to do with that, uh, because evolutionists, theistic evolutionists would also want to say that it's a it's a true historical account. True in the sense that they mean it's true, okay, which is not the literal sense being described here. So if literal means the 24-hour day view, then, I mean, it is what it is. Um, and, and so to, to say that to say that he believes it's true and it's historical, but it's not literal, in what sense does he mean that? And so let's just keep watching. Is The Bible uses different literary genres to tell us history. Not okay, this is 100% true. The Bible does use different literary genres to tell us history. Not all true historical narration in the Bible is literal. Now, this is a simple point, but again, I this is in some respects kind of a, a basic video, but I, I'm making it because I, I think sometimes people need to have these basic points introduced uh, just based on. So this is true, but I, I think it's important to note that you have a lot of different aspects in the Bible where you have both a literal rendering of a story and a poetic, which is a different genre. Hebrew poetry is a different genre, a poetic rendering of a story. And you can literally see the difference between them. Read Exodus 14 and then Exodus 15, and then go read Exodus, uh, excuse me, uh, Judges 4 and Judges 5. 
in both of those cases, you will find the first chapter being a literal telling of the blow-by-blow blow historical narrative that happens in a in the story. And then in Genesis 15, or excuse, excuse me, in Exodus 15, and then um, in um, uh, Judges chapter 5, you will then see the poetic retelling of those uh, respective events. And you will find that they are written much, much differently. And I would just ask you to honestly read Genesis 1, maybe even Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then go compare those to Exodus 14 and 15 and Judges 4 and 5, and you tell me, or you think to yourself, which one do you think the Genesis um, uh, passages read closer to? And I think I know what answer you're going to come away with if you're answering honestly. Based upon my conversations with people, you know, so not everything in the Bible is literal. You have to look at the, the literary genre in question. And if you turn Agreed. to the table of contents in the scripture, you're going to find whole books that are devoted to telling you true history, but not in a literal way. You know, in wisdom and prophetical literature and the apocalyptic books like Daniel, Revelation, the night visions of Zechariah, so many other things. This is true. And the question is, is Genesis written that way? So, uh, you know, you'll even have times where the same historical event is, is given in a more uh, narrative fashion and then in a poetic fashion. Like the yes, song of Deborah and Barak in Judges 5 exactly. describes true historical events, but in a very different way than how they're described in Judges chapter 4. Agreed. Earlier. So the simple point, exceedingly simple point here is we just have to read texts according to the author's intent. And that, and that involves literary genre. What kind of literature is it? Unfortunately, is Genesis history kind of bypasses this question. You even see with the title of the film, is it history? Well, lots of people believe it's history, but don't interpret it in the same way as the uh, scientists interviewed in that film. But again, readers are being given these two different options. The biggest problem here was the failure to discuss the differences between Genesis 1 and the rest of the book of Genesis. Basically, all interpreters recognize there are significant differences of tone, style, and language between more specifically Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and all the subsequent material. There's also some pretty uh, important differences between Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12 through 50. They're both historical, but there's differences in how history is narrated. And okay, now, what, what Gavin doesn't supply here, and what people who make this argument um, ultimately never uh, really seem to supply here, is how do we put our finger on those differences? What are those differences between Genesis 1, 1, and 2, 3 and the rest of Genesis and Genesis 1 through 11 and the rest of Genesis? What are those differences? Now, again, he makes a statement, broad brushing, that virtually all scholars see some differences there. Okay, what are the nature of those differences? Okay, let me just tell you, because it is confusing, and there are lots of different opinions on this. Let me just tell you what, what no scholar that I'm aware of sees in terms of the literary genres. I am not aware of a Hebrew scholar, and if you can point me to one, I will gladly go look it up and, and, and retract my statement. I'm just say, simply saying that I'm not aware of a Hebrew scholar who reads Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, or any part of Genesis 1 through 11 other than like, you know, minor little parts where like Adam says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. There's like little inserts in there, but I'm not aware of anybody who wholesale takes those chapters and says these are written in Hebrew poetry. I'm just not aware of that claim being made anywhere as far as i'm again aware of there is not a version of hebrew poetry that looks anything like genesis 1 1 um through genesis 11 okay those differences don't seem to be there okay and, and when we take a look at genesis 1 through 11 specifically and then look at 12 through 13 what are the differences well the biggest difference is not in the way that the passages are written and structured it's written in the scope of humanity. Genesis 12 and onward starts to tell the story of Israel. Genesis 1 through 11 is covering the story of all of mankind until Abraham is called out. So it's not 
it's not such that it's stylistically written that differently. There are some stylistic things that you can point to and it's beautiful style. Okay. But there's not a, a textual difference between those two that I've ever seen anyone point to and say, yeah, this is the particular textual difference. The biggest difference is that you're zooming in on Abraham and the people of Israel. And so the text is written a little bit differently because it's zooming in on those people and telling those narratives in a more specific way, because it's not talking about what's happening to specific people. Uh, the whole section, Genesis eight, uh, excuse me, six through uh, nine is dealing with this worldwide global event of the, of the flood. And so it's literally, and uh, there's a, a great scholar that we just had on the podcast, um, you know, not too long ago, Dustin Burlett talking about his, his understanding of the flood. He's a young age creationist scholar, believes what the Bible says about the flood in terms of literal history, and yet recognizes the beauty of the literary style and structure uh, of the passage. Nothing in the passage indicates that it was written in some sort of a poetic way. So again, if we're going to make the claim that there's a, a material difference between these passages, I would like to know what that material difference is. And I've just never seen anyone really point it out to me. And I've gone into that a little bit, which you're giving some of J.I. Packer's views of Genesis 1 through 11 in my written Let review. Let me uh, but just go to make back. Basic point here is really differences in how history is narrated. And I've gone into that a little bit, which you're giving some of J.I. Packer's views of Genesis 1 through 11 in my written review. But just to make basic point here, it's really problematic to equate one particular literary style of historical narration with historicity itself. In other words, you can't just assume that a text being historical means it, these are 24-hour literal days, because the debate we have is about. Again, that is. That is kind of true in a sense, but at the same time, nobody ever questions, and I know this is going to be a very can-ham sounding point, but it's true also. Nobody ever seems to have confusion around what a day means until it comes to Genesis 1, including Moses, the author of Exodus 20, verse 11, who explicitly drew a connection between the creation week and the physical seven-day week that Israel was to work and then rest. So. I, I'm, I'm just not sure why this is confusing. Not whether it's history, but how it is history, how it's communicating. To try to gain some sympathy for this point, when Exodus 31, 17 says that on the seventh day, the Lord rested and was refreshed, I might press the point and ask you, is that talking about a historical event? And you might say, well, yeah, but it, that doesn't mean it's literal. There's a difference between historical and literal. So this is a major problem with the film. So I, I guess maybe I just missed the point there, but on the seventh day, God was rested and refreshed. I mean, why, why can't that be literal? God can't be refreshed and rest i'm not sure why he can't film because again it's giving a false contrast if the film had argued that the young earth interpretation of the nature of the text historicity is the correct one over and against like a j.i packer or herman bovink or all these other people with different views then at least the viewers would get a sense of the different interpretive options unfortunately the, the impression given is that the choice is basically between 24-hour days and a recent universe or it's myth or poetry those are the kind of well, once again, um, that's been done over and over and over again. This is this was probably the first significant entry into the, um, uh, in, you know, into into popular young Earth creationist thought and teaching that didn't do that, um, and it, explicitly the point was not to do that. So uh, again, going through J.I. Packer's views and all these other things, that was not the point of this. Um, the point is to create the, the dichotomy between the 24-hour, you know, literal understanding of the, of the passage, right? The, the, the traditional church's historic view of origins and the, again, the idea of long ages and, and, and naturalism and things like that. So, I mean, it, again, it is a dichotomy. It's just a question of whether or not it's a false dichotomy and the way that it was presented, I, I don't think it is. 
kind of options that keep coming up throughout the film. Again, it's a false contrast. Okay, my third concern is that, unfortunately, at times the interviews give misleading claims about the strength of the scientific evidence for a young Earth. Now, I want to try to be as charitable as possible here. I'm sure many of these people are just wonderful Christian people, and certainly this is not true of all the interviews. You know, there's there's lots of interviews where I appreciate it. You can feel the honesty sometimes when someone's functioning in good faith, like when Todd Wood is addressing the question of human evolution, for example. I really appreciated the fact that he made his position very clear, uh, and that he admitted that there's some unanswered questions. To me, when someone does that, that, that means they're functioning in good faith, or it's a sign of that. Or yeah, I mean, I'll just reiterate, like, you should really get to know these guys, like spend more time with their content. Like, these are really good guys. Um, and they really love the Lord. And they really, they really believe they're doing a good thing. And I think they are. When Danny Faulkner is talking about rapid maturing to explain the challenge of starlight, uh, at least the difficulty is apparent in his discussion, and he's not claiming a false authority for his answer. You know, he's functioning in good faith and so forth. And I assume all of the interview, uh, the people being interviewed, were were not doing anything intentionally misleading. But one way or another, some of these comments are really problematic. Just to give two examples, in the first interview, the geologist Stephen Austin is discussing the Grand Canyon and how it was formed, and he says the story that we all learned in grammar school, Colorado River, over tens of millions of years, cut the Grand Canyon. Most geologists have jettisoned that idea. The fact that we have all of these layers um, would be unknown to us if we were standing on them, you know, somewhere else, but they're known to us because they've been cut out. How did that happen? Well, it was a story that we all learned in grammar school, okay, Colorado River, over tens of millions of years cut the Grand Canyon. Most geologists have jettisoned that idea. And then he asserts that this view, is, that that view, tens of millions of years, Grand Canyon is impossible, and he proposes an alternative view. His own view is catastrophic erosion by the drainage of lakes. Now, this is really there is some debate among scientists about how many millions of years the formation of the Grand Canyon took. 70 million years did it start, or just five or six million years ago, and so forth. Or was it like two stages? And that, there's some debate about that. But I don't know anybody outside the Young Earth camp who would question that it was the Colorado River that did the carving and that it took millions of years. So it's very... Okay, so um, let me uh, give some clarification here again, because he actually cut the clip off early. Okay, and and so he he went on to sort of say what what he believed that uh, Dr. Austin was trying to say. But let me actually just go play the full clip for you now. I'm going to share a different tab. I want to play the full clip for you so that you can actually see what Dr. Austin uh, said, and then you kind of decide along with me uh, whether or not you think that um, that that Gavin is accurately representing what Dr. Austin said here. Well, the fact that we have all of these layers um, would be unknown to us if we were standing on them, you know, somewhere else, but they're known to us because they've been cut out. How did that happen? Well, it was a story that we all learned in grammar school, okay? Colorado River, over tens of millions of years, cut the Grand Canyon. Most geologists have jettisoned that idea. It's hard to sustain a canyon like this for uh, tens of millions of years. It, it, you can't imagine a canyon enduring that long with erosion. Is that because it would have, eventually the sides would have collapsed and yes. broken down? then how in the world do we get this all carved out? Well, uh, there are lots of theories. And uh, personally, I like the idea of catastrophic erosion by drainage of lakes. So after the flood, we have... Okay, so um, again, I, if you just kind of listen to what was just said, and then you think back to the way that Gavin just presented this, do you think that was a fair take? Okay, I, I personally don't, okay? I personally don't think that... Dr. Austin was making the point. It sounded like when, when Gavin was pointing this out that, that Steve Austin was making the point that the Colorado River did not form um, the, uh, the Grand Canyon, or in other words, that the uh, secular geologists don't any longer believe that the uh, Colorado River formed the Grand Canyon and that it couldn't have taken place over millions of years. Okay. And that, by the way, this is all wrong and that, that um, here's the right view. Okay. N none of that is how it was presented. Okay, Dr. Austin said he continued very quickly. It was a run, it was a run on sentence. Okay, he 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 very quickly went into the fact that um, it's it's hard to sustain this idea for tens of millions of years, which Gavin pointed out. Okay, that some people you know believe sixty or seventy million years, and others believe five or six. Well, there's a huge difference there. Okay, Dr. Austin is not saying that that most modern geologists don't believe that it took millions of years to form the Grand Canyon, and that it wasn't on the Colorado River that that helped cut it out. 
He's not saying that at all. Again, if you have more context into what's going on, you know that that uh, there has been a rise in catastrophism among secular geologists. In other words, lots of secular geologists believe that not only was the Colorado River carving out the Grand Canyon, but that there were uh, periods of catastrophe throughout that time that uh, helped accelerate the processes and, and make it as epic as it is today. Okay, um, And then when he moved on from that point, he said, personally, he said that there's a lot of different opinions right? There's a lot of different opinions. Personally, I like the view that it was eroded because of all these different lakes. Okay. And so again, that's kind of the way that it was, that it was put. And so I, I don't, I, I'm going to let uh, Gavin continue here in a minute, but I don't, I don't really think it was fair to say that, uh, that, that Austin was even, even unintentionally misleading here. I, I think that he didn't go into all the detail that you would, maybe have you know wanted him to go into if you're a lay person but again he's a scientist and they're having these conversations and he goes into more detail on some of the behind the scenes stuff and the and the additional volumes and and all of that um so what's the point well i guess it's a really simple point that like i don't really think that there was any misrepresentation going on here if anything i think i think gavin might have inadvertently represented dr austin's view i don't think that dr austin was stating this in such a dichotomous way as as gavin uh, presented it again that's just my take my opinion when i saw this i thought i've got to go see what dr austin said because i don't seem to remember it being uh quite as harsh as uh gavin seems to have interpreted that and um Based on what we just saw there, I I, I hope you'd agree with me. I think I, I think I'm thinking correctly about that. Okay, so let's go back to Gavin. It's very misleading to give viewers the impression that that is what is being jettisoned by most geologists. That's what a lot of viewers are going to walk away thinking. It's very problematic. Another example comes in the third. Again, I'm just not sure if that's the case. I, I don't I don't think that if you actually watch the full thing that he said that you're going to get the impression that geologists don't think that the Colorado River formed it over millions of years. Um, you might not understand everything that I just said, but I don't think you're going to come away with that impression that, that Gavin seems to think you will. I mean, you certainly will if you stop it where he stopped the video and put a period at the end of the sentence. The third interview, when the Hebraist Stephen Boyd is asked whether the days of Genesis 1 are literal or poetic, and again, I would say those are not the only two options. I would say it's not literal and it's not poetry. It's I would call it a stylized prose. Okay, so a um, couple things here. So first of all, this is not a misleading appeal from science. This is, we're talking about scripture right now. So again, he's only actually referenced one misleading appeal from science, and I don't think it was actually misleading. Secondly, um, he used the term here that he would say that it is sort of a stylized prose. Now, this is a fascinating admission, okay? Um, number one, uh, Dr. Boyd, Stephen Boyd, the Hebraist, also believes that I can't remember the exact terminology that he uses. I want to say that he uses the same terminology, and I could be mistaken about this, so check my sources. Dr. John Currid, I have heard him make the statement that the um, that Genesis 1 is, is using what we might call an exalted prose. And I think... If I remember correctly, that that is also the view in one of those uh, in one of the seventy creationist lectures that is available on isgenesishistory.com. Go to their store; they've got over seventy hours of lectures from the people who are in this film, explaining scientifically with powerpoints and everything, almost an hour long every time. Their views that informed the thoughts that went into this. So that's a it's like literally less than five dollars or something crazy. I think go to isgenesishistory.com and grab that. In one of his videos there. Um, Stephen Boyd uh, gives his opinion on this as well, and I think it's very much in line with Dr. John Curran's opinion on this, about it being a sort of exalted prose. Uh, nobody doubts that Genesis 1, in fact, he's got a whole video on this, Stephen Boyd does. Nobody doubts that Genesis 1 is a literary masterpiece. 
it's it's beautiful. It's extraordinary. It's arguably one of the greatest works that have ever been produced. But that doesn't mean that what it's saying is not literally true. And again, I hate using that word, but you please, I hope you know what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that it's not literally true. And it doesn't mean that it's not narrative. And that's a whole other thing, but Dr. Boyd did a whole study showing that when a Hebrew passage is uh, appears to be narrative, that the Hebrews would have, for various reasons, which he lists a bunch of them, uh, would have interpreted it as being historically true. Okay, and again, I, Gavin and others are, are sort of really wanting to get you know mincy with the words here and say, yeah, I believe it's historically true. I just don't believe it's literally true. And again, in what sense are we talking about? In 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 what sense can we possibly make sense of the days of Genesis being anything other than a, a literal ordinary day? Um, again, there are very few scholars now who take that view. There are some, but there are very few. Most even Hebrew scholars uh, would say that the text does say that these are ordinary days. Okay, this is going to be, um, again, your John Walton. Like You're going to have a lot of people, mainstream, ancient, Near Eastern, and Semitic scholars who take this view that the text assumes a literal 24-hour solar day framework for that six days of, of work and then one day of rest, but that the text ultimately isn't teaching that. Okay, they want to say that the text it's in the assumptions of the writers of the text. That's why Exodus 20:11 says it with such clarity, but that that's not literally how the world was formed. Again, it is meant to be taken as a poetry that um, was simply trying to assert the theological point of God's control and sovereignty over creation and to polemicize against the other ancient Near Eastern views. Again, I don't think those views are mutually exclusive. I think we can have um, a beautiful passage that was written. I think we can be dissing the gods of the other ancient Near Eastern cultures around Israel and telling a true story at the same time. I've just never been presented with a convincing argument that we have to separate those. But uh, that's a separate issue for now. His response is to emphatically assert that the world's greatest Hebraists all affirm that this is narrative. Well, you're talking about days here. Do you see these as literal days? Is that what the text is telling us? Or you know what other people think, that the, this is just a poetic uh, difference? Well, first of all, it's not poetry. The world's greatest Hebraists all affirm that this is a narrative. Mm -hmm. the okay. Now, 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 let me just say, number one, I'm not necessarily sure that he should have stated this the way that he did. I don't necessarily agree with that. All is a dangerous word. I think we should learn to make more modest claims. This is a view that I've consistently spoken on many times in many places now. Um, he should have made a more modest claim than this. But certainly, throughout church history, most Hebraists have come to understand that this is not number one. Well, he is, I think, right when he says all in the claim that he's the specific claim that he's making, which is that this is narrative, some sort of prose, some sort of narrative, as opposed to poetry. This text is almost certainly not Hebrew poetry. It does not have the classic markers of Hebrew poetry. And so I'm not sure of any Hebraist that would argue that this is Hebrew poetry. And again, that's the real question that was being you know, elucidated here. I don't know that it would be fair to say that all Hebraists, all the world's greatest Hebraists, take this to be narrative. Again, I think they would want to mince words and call it something like an exalted prose or a stylized prose or something like that. They would potentially some of them would buck against the word narrative, but it does have the primary marker of Hebrew historical narrative, which is the Vog, uh, excuse me, the Vav consecutive. And I know this is not this is an argument that's been used many many times now. Um, 
it, it it's not necessary. Okay, it's not a necessity. So if if a text uses the VOB consecutive, therefore the text is narrative. That's not true. But most of the time, when you have the repeated use of the VOV consecutive, you are looking at a narrative the vast majority of the time. So it's a logical chain, okay? You have the use of, even if it's not, let's just put it this way. I'll even make a more modest claim. And somebody could uh, contest this, and please contest this if you want to, but I believe it's true. I believe it's true that the primary marker of Hebrew historical narrative is the use of the Vav consecutive. I, I believe that's a true statement. If it is wrong, then let me know. I believe that is true. And I have plenty of people who will let me know that. Okay, so if I'm wrong on this point, take down the timestamp, put it in the comments. I, I would love to get your thoughts on this. I believe it's a true statement that the primary marker of Hebrew historical narrative is the use of the Vav consecutive. Okay? That is what we have in the text. Okay? The um, primary marker of Hebrew historical poetry or uh, of Hebrew poetry, excuse me, does not exist in this text. Okay. And the primary marker of Hebrew poetry is this uh, idea for idea sort of um, line. There's actually different ways of, of putting it. Um, and it's going to bug me. Now I, I'm going to like pause this real quick and um, go look it up and tell you what it's called because now I'm forgetting what the name of it is. Okay, I'm back. Sorry about that. It was driving me nuts because it was on the tip of my tongue. Parallelism, okay? Um, in Hebrew poetry, arguably, again, if arguably the Bob consecutive is the primary marker of Hebrew historical narrative, arguably the um, primary marker of Hebrew poetry is uh, synonymous parallelism or antithetic parallelism or um, synthetic is the other one, synthetic or, or constructive parallelism, okay? And it's beyond the scope of this video to go into what all those are, okay? Um, but the point is, is that in, in this passage, you do not have the primary marker of Hebrew poetry, and you do seem to have what I believe is the primary marker of a Hebrew uh, narrative. And so I think it argues pretty well for that being the case and for that being the reality. Now, there is another form of um, a Hebrew um, poetry, or at least it's a, a device used in poetry, called a chiasm. And many have argued that Genesis uh, does have a chiasm in it, and actually various aspects of Genesis, and actually various aspects of the Bible, including the entire biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation, is actually in the format of a chiasm. So to say that because it's got a chiasm, that means it's poetry, actually proves too much because there's chiasms that are also used in narratives in the biblical text as well. And even though you have um, little bits of parallelism inserted into um, what are otherwise historical narratives, it doesn't mean that those narratives overall are then somehow poetic. That doesn't even make sense, okay? So again, it, it we are... The, the movie, in my opinion, just is tracking on the right stuff. It might not be the stuff that most old age creationists like, but it is tracking on the right stuff and, and seeming to get to the correct issues, even if I, especially in Dr. Boyd's case, maybe wouldn't have stated it in quite so explicit terms. In the context of a question being asked here about literal days versus poetry, this is going to give people the impression that 24-hour literal days here has this massive support from Hebraists. Uh, that means scholars of... It, it, it does. Make no mistake. It does. Now, whether or not it means that that it, that it's it's saying that that's what actually happened, you have most Hebraists at this point are admitting that that's what the text says. Um, it does have massive support. I mean, uh, that I don't think you can contest that.
scholars of Hebrew. And uh, that might be rhetorically impressive, but it's not representative of truth. The, the, in fact, it's not at all true that the world's greatest Hebraists all hold the 24-hour days as a way to interpret it. That's not even true for how Christians throughout history have interpreted this text. I've gone through that in my video response to Ken Ham, where I talk about pre-modern Christians like Athanasius and Augustine and others. So this, again, it's going to give viewers a misleading impression of the truth. Okay, to conclude, why is this important? Why do I address this on my YouTube channel? Um, I, I know that uh, it's kind of painful in a way for me, honestly, because I know a lot of my viewers love this film, and this might be painful for them. But I address this because I have deep in my heart a sincere worry of the, the honestly, I just see this happening so much. I see the harmful effect so much. The whole point of Truth Unites, my ministry, is to help people find assurance in the gospel. And I think films like this put stumbling blocks in people's way. Let me give a... Okay, so, so amen to assurance in the gospel, and that's why this film exists. This film exists. What Gavin calls a stumbling block is what this film wants to represent or, or wants to say is to make you think. In, in a sense, to make you stumble. If I could put it in a, in, a, in a little bit different way, many of you may know who Greg Kokel is, be listeners or fans of him. He talks about when he evangelizes, he actually wants to annoy Christians or non-Christians in a good way. He wants to put a stone in their shoe, okay? And what he means by this is he wants to get them thinking. And like it or not, this movie gets people thinking, okay? Now, again, Gavin interprets it as a stumbling block, okay? Whereas the point of the movie is that this is an issue. This is a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block in the sense that if we stumble over this, it creates logical problems for the gospel, okay? Um, it is a big deal. It, it's not just some secondary thing that that doesn't matter. And again, you know, the movie tries to be really gracious about this. It, it's a it's a fantastic entry into the um, young age creationist paradigm and, and into our materials. And, I'm, and like it was a game changer, and I'm so uh, happy for it. It does present, though, the uncomfortable truth that that Gavin admittedly does not like. And so let me actually go back a little bit. I'm going to make him a little bigger on the screen here. Let me go back a little bit because I feel like there's something else I wanted to point out there, but um, I uh, perhaps not, but let me go back a little. But I address this because I have deep in my heart a sincere worry of the, the – honestly, I just see this happening so much. I see the harmful effect so much. The whole point of Truth Unites, my ministry, is to help people find assurance in the gospel. Oh, that's the point I wanted to make. He, he said to help people find assurance in the gospel. And again – a young age creationist's point, okay, even if we're trying to be nice about it and everything, ultimately is that if you believe in long ages, the assurance of the gospel is not so clear-cut. Now, that is not to say that you can't be a Christian and believe in long ages. Of course you can. Not even the most vitriolic young earth creationist that you could think of believes that you can't be saved and be an old earth creationist. Of course you can. Again, it's the assurance of the gospel. It's the logical piece of it, okay? That's what a young earth, uh, young earth creation, that's why young age creationists are so passionate about what they do. And I think films like this put stumbling blocks in people's way. Let me give a, a scenario to demonstrate this concern. Suppose someone's a freshman in college and they're in a geology class and the extent they were raised in the church and they're a Christian and the extent of their engagement in creation issues has basically been maybe a couple sermons, hear about it a little bit, and then watching this film is Genesis history. And they're not aware of anything beyond that. So basically in their mind, they're thinking the universe is either six to 10,000 years old. And that's simply what the historic reading of Genesis is, or it's naturalism. God wasn't involved at all. And then they were struggling with their geology textbook. And they're kind of surprised at how versatile and subtle and strong the evidence for an older earth is. It doesn't feel, it kind of feels conspiratorial to think all of this data is, is wrong. And she's starting to wonder, uh, is the universe, maybe the universe is a little bit older. Now, here's the question is what's going to happen to her faith if those are her view, views of the options? You know, it'd be one thing if she had this sense of, okay, you know, the young earth creationist view is the best interpretation of Genesis, but there's other people who are Christians who still take the scripture seriously, who all do a different view. But if she's been told that the young earth creationist view is the only Christian view that upholds the historicity and truthfulness of Genesis, this will lead to a crisis of faith, in many cases, a loss of faith. And that is what I see happening over and over and over. And those are the very kind of people that my YouTube channel exists to try to help. Okay. So th this scenario, though hypothetical, 
Ironically, it is blow by blow, very descriptive of exactly something that happened to one of the scientists in the film. His name is Dr. Kurt Wise. His testimony, um, in fact, on the fly here, we're going to go right now and we're going to see if it's public. If it's public, I think we should watch it. It is. It's public. It's very long. Um, I'm going to play it, okay? I'm, I'm go Again, I'm going on the fly here. Uh, I'm going to play this. Um, it's long, but you know what? Uh, you can turn this off if you want to. But I, I want you to hear Dr. Kurt Wise's testimony because it explains exactly what Gavin is talking about here. This literally happened to arguably the man whose faith was so strong, he's actually been criticized for standing on the biblical resolve in the face of allegedly the evidence. He went on to become arguably the most influential creationist, uh, creationist there is today, has a PhD under Stephen Jay Gould from Harvard University. And though Gavin is concerned about a crisis of faith happening, I think that if a person is truly confronted with this view and they are forced to somehow choose science over the Bible, uh, then this is an indicative thing of their, of their faith. And, and this might be hard to hear, but the truth is sometimes hard to hear. So while truth does unite, it's also hard to hear sometimes. And, and so I think it's actually worth playing this. And I hope that's okay. It's on YouTube, so it's it's free and clear. Um, we're just going to play this and let you uh, check it out. And we'll go from there. My name is Kurt Wise. I am addressing the question of why I'm a creationist. Why I'm a creationist is very much uh, related to how I became a creationist. So I'll relate that story. I was in grade school. I had come to know the Lord as my personal savior at the age of nine, uh, but that was separate from the issue of uh, creationism. I was raised in a church that taught creationism, uh, but uh, that was church. And uh, I was also going to a public school. I was learning what uh, they had to teach, uh, and it would take some time before I'd acknowledge the fact that there was actually a discordance between those two things. <clears throat> the, uh, I also need, need you to understand that during this period of time throughout my grade school years, I was very much interested in science, uh, although I'm not sure I would have necessarily called it science at that point, uh, but I loved everything having to do with the uh, outdoors. I collected uh, birds' nests, and I collected birds' eggs, and I collected birds because I'm taxidermist, and, uh, and, and it went on and on. Uh, by the time I graduated from high school, I had 36 hobbies and collections. There were a few things that were normal, like stamps and coins, but most everything else was having to do with science. Uh, science was really everything I loved. I loved to do, and it was one of those few things I could do because unlike uh, our society uh, cherishes guys that can do athletics, it hates guys that cannot, and I could not. There was nothing I could do. I, I had a hand-eye coordination, nothing. And I was the shortest kid in the class and all of this sort of thing. So uh, yeah, it was, So the only thing that was a value, not to anyone else, but the only thing that uh, I, could, I could cherish as value was in fact things having to do with science. So in eighth grade, uh, for some reason, I, I lived out in the country and went to a country school, a place that had a single building with multiple rooms where you know, from kindergarten through eighth grade, we were in the same building. We worked our way down the hallway. Uh, kindergarten was in one room, first grade across the hall, and then second, and so on, all the way down to the end of the building. Uh, so uh, throughout grade school years, there was always that, oh, down the end of the hall, this is, this is the future, way down there. And got closer and closer to that big day. And, and long before I got to the end, we realized that there was a big event. There was this, this thing at the end of the eighth grade year, which uh, somehow heralded the fact that we had successfully completed the uh, uh, the centuries of of time that it took to get down to the end of the end of the hallway, uh, I have no idea why out in the middle of the country the the hallmark event the, uh, the the thing that gave you the 
the right to go to the big city high school, um, Rochelle in Rochelle. And they had a big, humongous school, scary stuff. But obviously, you know, you finish here and, whoa, you've gone into the big world at that point. And they chose the big event was a science fair of all things. I have no idea. It makes no sense. Even to this day, I don't understand. But way back in third grade, I can remember looking at that science fair as the big event. I've got it. That's, that's my whole life was focused on that science fair for eighth grade. Get into eighth grade. And I mean, that's less than a year away. <laughs> and of course, I started right away on this, on this puppy. <clears throat> Based upon all of my um, all of my interests, I said, well, I want to do a project that involves as many of my interests as possible. I contemplated various things and finally decided upon the topic of evolution. Because with evolution, I could bring in my fossils, I could bring in my trees and my birds and my plants and, uh, and, uh, and the geology and all of that stuff. And so I decided that that was going to be my project. I was going to do an evolution project. So I went into the school library and took out every book that they had on evolution and read both of those. Then went on into the big city of Rochelle to the Rochelle uh, library, monstrous library that it was, and took out all the books there and read both of those. And, uh, and then took out encyclopedias. You know, back then they did have internet, so you know, I couldn't do that. It's everything I could get my hands on. Uh, we went to the, uh, dad drove me over to the university, uh, several, several towns over and went into the university library. Whoa, <laughs> there's lots of books on evolution there. And I read and I devoured, I built this, um, <clears throat> dad helped me design a, a stair step thing, uh, where, uh, starting at the base, you're starting at the beginning of earth history and you step up through time so that the last step is the uh, present and the run, the length of the run in each step is proportional to the length of that geologic period. Uh, and so I memorized at that point, the geologic uh, column, the Cambrian Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Mississippi, and Pennsylvania, and all of that, and, and everything that was in it. I, mean, I had drawings there of uh, the extent of water, oceans versus land on each of those periods. And I had fossils representing each one of those periods. And uh, I mean, I put everything I could into this project. Years later, I would meet, re-meet one of my classmates. Uh, she would introduce me in our meeting to her eighth grade uh, daughter. And she said, this is the one I was talking about. And, and, and then she would, and the, and the girl would go, oh, and I go, oh man, what in the world? And she said, yeah, this is the guy that when it came to the science fair, uh, he had one half of the room and everybody else had the other half of the room. So I think that was an exaggeration. But anyway, uh, the, the point was that I put a lot of work into this and I was done, I, we, we were done before the uh, project, uh, actually before the day came. Uh, but I have to tell you about Carl too. Carl was my best friend. Carl chose a different project. <clears throat> he did one of those things that no one ever does for a science fair. He decided he'd make a volcano. And a few weeks, a couple weeks before the, the big event, he had a dry run, no, dry run, not a good description of what he did. Uh, when he did that, three days later, after we'd replaced the desk, the ceiling tiles, and various things around the room, poor little Carl, I was, he and I vied for the shortest kid in the class. He's a little guy, uh, really nice and quiet, and the teacher walks right up to his desk, and he looks up at the teacher, and she says, you will not build a volcano for your science fair. Okay, <laughs> and at that point it's kind of close. It's it's only a couple weeks away, and so he joined me on the project. So the two of us finished up the project together. <clears throat> it came around to the big day, and the big day we didn't have any class that day. That whole day was to be devoted to setting up the project and this sort of thing. But I was already done. And I, uh, Dad had brought the truck in and, and backed it up, and <laughs> we'd, we'd haul that thing in the, the previous night. We got the principal allowed us in the room to, to move everything in, so it was already in place. Uh, and now, you know, most of the rest of the class was starting their project there in the morning and working on it throughout the day, flurrying about trying to, trying, to, trying to create something at the last minute. And Carl and I had nothing to do all day long. Uh, and, uh, but I said to Carl, as we sat down in the desk, desks facing each other, I said, Carl, I got a problem. Well, he said, what is that? I said, I can't reconcile what we just did with the Bible. And he says, well, what do you mean? 
And so I took out a Bible and I read out loud while everyone was scurrying about doing their thing. I just read through Genesis chapter one. I said, everything we learned with the millions of years, billions of years in the order of the, of the of things, you know, we got the, you know, the evolution says that the uh, sun came at the same time as the earth and sea creatures came before uh, the plants and the, uh, and the flying creatures came before the land creatures. The order's wrong. The time's wrong. Just, I, I, mean, I just can't make them fit. And after I read through the whole thing, he, Carl says, yeah, I, I see what you mean. And then I had this epiphany. It's like, wait a minute. Wow, this is an idea. I probably should publish this or something because no one's come up with this idea. I said, what if I said out loud at this point to Carl, what if the days in Genesis are millions of years long? If we made them millions of years long, you know, that would accommodate most of the problems here. And Carl says, yeah, that sounds good. And in my mind, it was an amazing solution. If you had a list of 100 problems, it took out 95 of them. But there were those nagging problems that didn't quite get rid of. The order it was not the same, for example. But just a few. So I stuck them. I created a little room in my brain. You're looking at me like, I'm weird. But okay, I'm sorry. This is just the way I am. I created a little room in my brain, put them on a shelf in that room, closed the door, put 16 locks on the door, and everything's fine. Sure. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I convinced myself. It's fine. It's going to be okay. You can ignore that room. You walk past it. No, don't look at that room. And I didn't look for a couple of years. I wanted to look, but I didn't look for a couple of years. And I, in the sophomore year of high school, I couldn't take it anymore. Gotta open up the room. I gotta deal with this. So I snuck out of, don't tell anyone. I snuck out of high school in the middle of the day, went down and purchased a Bible, snuck back into high school and took it home. Now, it isn't that Rochelle, Illinois, buying Bibles is will get you thrown in jail or something. It's what I was going to do to the Bible that scared the bejeebers out of me. And I didn't want anyone to know I had this Bible for what I was about to do to it. Took it home. I slipped into my sleeping bag. I'd learned years before that if I slept in my sleeping bag on top of my bed, I didn't have to make my bed. So <laughs> slip into my sleeping bag with my Bible, a pair of scissors, and a flashlight. And I began my, pro my project. The question before me was, if evolution was true, how much of the Bible would I have to cut out? And so I opened up the Bible to the first page. And I read down through the Bible. When I found a verse that I would have to throw out, if evolution were true, I would cut it out with my scissors. Now, you're ahead of me. I understand. I looked for a Bible that had printing on only one side of the page. And so I realized if I, if I cut out the verse on one side of the page, it's cutting out the verse on the other side of the page too. So I decided that I would cut out every other verse that I encountered. Is that fair? Are you, are you doing, are you doing, doing fair? And <clears throat> now it's important too that I didn't cut in from the outside of the page. I decided I would stab the verse, verse right in the middle and cut out to the, towards the outside and leave as much of that little white stuff that really isn't in the Bible uh, in there as possible to hold itself together. As you're about to see, that's going to help uh, skew the answer in a particular direction. Uh, and, but anyway, so I started to work. And night after night, reading, poking, cutting, and working my way through the Bible. Now, it was pretty obvious where things were going very early on, but I continued all the way through for a couple of reasons. One, I'm an obsessive compulsive. Okay, so you've got to finish the project. But number two, I didn't want to get to the end. I didn't want to make the decision I knew I had to make. Because here was the issue. Evolution, as I understood it, was true because it was part, it was what I was taught in science. It is what is in all the textbooks. It must be true, but it's part of science. And science was everything I loved. So you've got, on the one hand, you've got science, everything I loved, everything of value. If I wasn't able to do science, I was able to do nothing of any value. I had no value at all. And then there was the Bible. <laughs> the question was, is evolution true or the Bible true? If the Bible is true and evolution's not, everything I love is gone. If uh, 
if, if and, and this was the issue, I was struggling with these two things. I didn't want to make that decision between the two. But alas, it took me more than a year. But finally, I came to Revelation 22, 19. He who takes away from the words of this book, <laughs> his name shall be taken out of the book of life. <laughs> Gotta take that puppy out. <laughs> I thought, man, if I do this, if I put that hole in there, there's gonna be a crater. It's just went, it's gonna be all over, you know. But I did so, I cut that last verse out. I then tore the cover off of the Holy Bible and set it on the bed in front of me. I realized I can't delay any longer. I've got to make my decision. The question before me was, given what I have done, is there enough left in the Bible to hold itself together? If I was to take my two fingers and reach in there and squeeze the Bible from front to back, could I pick it up? Is there enough left for it to hold itself together physically? Remember, I've biased it in favor of holding the Bible together because I left all that white stuff that uh, isn't really in the Bible. As much as I tried, as, as much as I tried, I couldn't. No matter where I did it, I could feel the Bible giving way. Try another. It was giving way. There wasn't enough left to hold itself together. And I knew the decision. I had to make the decision. It's either evolution, which I equated with science, or it's the Bible. It can't be both. And I thought back to the age nine when my Sunday school teacher took his Bible, pushed it across the table, pushing my Bible out of the way, and introduced me to Jesus Christ. I wanted to, before my salvation, my salvation was, came um, <clears throat> a few days after I decided to commit suicide. My salvation saved me spiritually and physically. I never had to go up into the treehouse to decide to kill myself or to kill myself. And Jesus had become a friend. I couldn't, I couldn't get out the Bible. And so I gave up everything I loved, gave up science. And I cried for three days. It's like, it's everything. And on a Friday, I got into the bus with the rest of the youth group and they took us to, I'm sure this was planned for a long time, but I don't, it's like I never knew it was coming or whatever. Dumped us off in a parking lot. We got into a gymnasium, sat down in the bleachers and, and a person stood up on, in a podium and uh, introduced himself and said, hi, I'm a scientist. I'm a creationist. I don't believe in evolution. And I don't remember a thing he said after that because the thing was like, what? You mean you, mean you, can, you can do science and reject evolution? That evolution isn't science? You can tease that out? And it's as if God said, as he said to Abraham, as Abraham was bringing down the knife to his son, he says, stop, for now I know you love me more than these. As God gave me back science, because he said, now I know you love me more than the science. That is why I'm a creationist. Because if, if you try, and you can try, if you try to mix these things, and I did it for evolution, but... It works just as well if you ask the question, is the earth old? If you, if you insist that the earth is old, then you have to cut out so many verses from the Bible that it cannot hold itself together. If you believe the earth is old and you're consistent, you must reject every Christian doctrine we hold dear. You cannot believe both. If you're consistent, fortunately people aren't consistent, but if you're consistent, you cannot hold to an old earth and accept the truth of the Bible. I believe the truth of the Bible, therefore I believe that God created only thousands of years ago that's why I am a young earth creationist, and there I must stand. Thank you. And, oh man, what a powerful and important testimony. Um, he's got a great video. Um, it's on their channel, It's Genesis History. 
Uh, I really, and by the way, if you, if you want to go like actually get into the, some of the nitty gritty details of this, you can go to the Genesis History YouTube channel. They've got a ton of stuff there for free. One of the videos they have there is is by Kurt Weiss. It's called um, "The Age of Things." The Age of Things, and basically what he does there, that whole exercise that he walked through, um, he goes through just Genesis one through eleven and shows logically what you have to take out of the Bible if the Earth is old. And again, it's, it's not as though Dr. Wise never considered some kind of other option. Again, he came up with this grand idea about the days, uh, you know, the ages being, um, or the days being ages or something. And I mean, again, it turns out that most do not believe that. Most do not believe that the ages can, or that the days of Genesis can be interpreted as ages of some kind. Most Hebraists do not believe that. Um, uh, but even if they did, it wouldn't make it right. Okay. Um, very important. Very important to realize that when this, like literally the the, the thought experiment that Dr. Gavin Ortland uh, presented before us is exactly what Dr. Wise went through. And he made the choice to follow scripture, to follow the understanding of the Bible that he believed was true. And that is also the church's historic view on origins. And that, again, um, uh, most Hebraists over time have held. Okay, whether or not they hold it, it's true. They hold it. That's what the Bible states. Okay, um, and, and once again, plenty of resources that that will sort of make that point. Uh, let's get back to Gavin's video if you're still watching. Uh, and I just kind of finished out. I think he's just about done. Um, but let's go look there and uh, and just let him kind of get finished. I'm burdened. I'm not so much burdened to get people to always agree on the details of how to interpret Genesis one or other issues of creation. I'd actually like for us to put more focus on more basic classical issues in the doctrine of creation that distinguished a Christian view from other views in the early church, like creation out of nothing, the goodness of creation, the contingency of creation. But I am concerned when people make the young earth paradigm, like the option, like that's what you have to believe. And since there's a car law. Again, I mean, if he had watched Dr. Wise's testimony, he would probably be, be saying, see, see, see what a shame that he didn't have to make the choice. But again, Dr. Wise didn't do it in that video because it was a different video, but but Dr. Wise w does walk through the logic uh, of why that choice is necessary. Um, and again, very many people do believe that that is a necessary choice. Um, not not the choice of believing in Jesus. You you can you can believe in Jesus, but like Dr. Wise said, it's a matter of whether or not you're consistent. He said if you're consistent, then you would have to make the choice between believing in Jesus, believing the gospel, believing the Bible is true, and the young age creationist position. I know it's a hard saying. Who can hear it? I understand that. Um, but it is, it is ultimately what, um, you know, what I believe and what, what the folks at this Genesis history believe. And that's why it was presented in this way. Alarm right outside my window. Oh, that stopped. Okay. I guess I get 30 more seconds here just to finish by saying this. Um, basically I, I would say for, for pastors and other leaders considering, should we use this film is Genesis history in our churches? I would just plead with people to at least include other perspectives as well. You know, let people. And by the way, I'm, I'm cool with that. Like certainly include other perspectives, but you know. Um, I, I think I think you're gonna find that that the other perspectives are not very well argued. They're just not. Um, that I'm aware of, there is very little by way of sound argument for a way of interpreting the ages of Genesis in a way consistently other than a day. And again, I just really do not believe that 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 all or even most, certainly not even most Hebrew scholars believe that they can be interpreted as epochs or something else. I mean, you're either gonna have for the most part, two views. You're going to have the view that it says 24-hour literal days, and that's what it means, or that it says 24-hour literal days, but that's um, not what it's teaching. Okay, you're going to have some kind of variation of those views. I would say, I would say, if you put 20 Hebraeus in a room, I would say maybe, maybe you'll have five who would say, yeah, this could be an epoch or something like that, to the 15 
who would say something along the lines of, yes, the text means 24-hour days. And then within those 15, there would be varying opinions on whether or not it was to be taken literally in the sense of this is what the text is teaching, or it was just an assumption of the biblical writers. Um, something like that, I think, is probably a, a, a fair pictorial way to represent it. People know about these debates because actually, actually, I mean, I, I've been studying this since I was a sophomore in, high, in college when I went through one of those kind of moments. And uh, basically, I would have to say this is actually complicated. And it's complicated enough that actually there is room for godly Christians to disagree about it. Uh, after about 21 years or so of struggle, that's one conclusion I definitely have landed upon. There's space for Christians to see the details of creation in terms of how long it took differently. Now, if you want more resources on this, again, this is where my YouTube channel exists. Uh, the first interview I ever did was on was with Jack Collins, who's written a fantastic book called Reading Genesis Well. I'll link to that interview, also to his book, highly recommended. It. It's a more academic book, but you know people can get into it. He's using C.S. Lewis to help us understand the nature of, of literature and how it works. You could also see his debate with Al Mohler. This is be helpful to watch because it gives you a sense of two different perspectives on creation, and it's good because you can see they both still regard each other as Christians, and you can hear Al Mohler talking about how he even hires people on for his faculty that don't hold to his same view. So it's helpful. You know, that's the kind of thing people need to be aware of, and increasingly, there's this polarization on this issue, and that's unhelpful. So I hope this video will be helpful. Uh, I'll continue to do things on creation. I also have videos coming out on the flood, on Adam and Eve, and on hopefully if I can get a chance to watch it uh, and, and find the time and star move, the next, the sequel to uh, Is Genesis History, the one about mountains after the flood. So all that is still to come on my channel, so keep your eyes peeled for those things. Uh, let me know what you think in the comments. Thanks for watching, everybody. <laughs> well, I guess the question is, does the, uh, does the winsome creationist just need to become a Gavin Ortland response channel? Um, no, you know, Gavin's doing great work uh, again. And thank you. If you did watch this, thank you for watching. Um, you know, I know this is a little bit different than what we normally do. Um, but hey, you know, here we are. I thought I would try this. And uh, in the future, maybe doing this format, I can do it a little bit more, you know, cleanly, um, if that's a word. So thanks for, for paying attention here. I, I mean, again, let me just reiterate, Gavin's a great guy. Um, but uh, But I think he's wrong here. Right. I mean, again, just because there are others who hold the view does not mean that the logical razor's edge doesn't exist. And I think that uh, is Genesis history did not misrepresent other views. I think that they uh, did not have a false dichotomy. I think they presented a correct dichotomy. And uh, ultimately, I think that the film was helpful for very many people. And I, I know that. Um, he's going to disagree and many others may disagree, but that's where I land on it. And so I just wanted to kind of share my thoughts on that. And hopefully it was helpful to some of you. Um, God bless you guys. Take care. Uh, this is the winsome creationist after all. So we are doing our best when we do have interactions like this to engage kindly and, uh, in a way that is, um, you know, befitting of a, of a Christian, um, brotherly conversation. So I hope that you found this to be the case. Um, and if not, please call me out on it. I want to be increasingly winsome uh, in everything that we do. So God bless. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll see you in the next video.